0: Well, I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Colossians 3. That song pretty much sums it up. It's in Christ alone, right? Amen. Great lyrics. Thank you, music team. We are finishing up our study here of Colossians 3, at least the section we've been in, and uh, and just really looking at the foundation of of all of our godly relationships and, and really just taking some time and understanding uh, what it means to, to relate to each other distinctively as Christians. We have left off at Colossians 3, verse 11. And I'd like to read for you the text here. Colossians 3, verses 11 through 14. Actually, I'm going to start up at uh, verse 9 in my reading here. He says, Do not lie to one another, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. We just sung that, didn't we? Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for the, the privilege of uh, singing the great songs of the love of Christ, the forgiveness, the kindness, the meekness, the compassion that we have been a recipient of. Lord, may that just wrap our minds this morning. May it just shake us out of our self-absorption and and just cause us to see the great, great blessing of being in you. And now, God, help us as we fall under your word this morning to let it do its work. These are challenging words for us because of our flesh. And so, Lord, may we hear these words through the Spirit that they have been delivered in Your grace, in Your mercy, in Your kindness, and Your meekness. And, Lord, may it change us in the way we relate to others. And I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen. About uh, 15 years ago or so, I read a book. Some of you might know this book. It's called The Sunflower. It's written by a man by the name of Simon Wiesenthal, and uh, Simon was a Jew who uh, was in a, a concentration camp during World War II, and, uh, and of course, he went through the, the horrible experience of, uh, as a young man, being pulled away from his family and being tortured, and, and all that happened in, in the concentration camps. You, you know, he, he experienced all of it. He survived it. But on one particular day, the, the purpose of this book is he's describing an event that happened in his life. What had happened was he was pulled off a work detail. And and when he was pulled off this work detail, he ended up uh, being brought to the bedside of a dying Nazi soldier. And this particular soldier had done horrible things to the Jews. And one in particular that he had done was just horrifying. And what this soldier wanted was he wanted a Jew to forgive him. And so Simon was brought to the bedside of this man, where this man proceeded to tell all the things that he had done to uh, this family and how he had just killed them. And it was horrible. And, and he basically confesses this horrible sin. And this, this Nazi is, is laying there in the bedside. And, and he knows that he is moments away from standing face to face with God. And he wants to have a Jew forgive him. So that he could stand there with a clear conscience. And, and so Simon is standing there and this, this man says to him, will you forgive me? And, and Simon doesn't know what to do. You could just imagine this moment. You know, you're being tortured by these people, you're malnourished, you're, you're, you know, every day you don't know if you're going to live or die, you've watched your friends and family members be killed, and you're standing there, and this man's soul is under torment, and so Simon says, I didn't know what to do, so I did nothing, I just stood there and stared at him. The man eventually died. Simon, though, went back to his barracks, and uh, of course all the people in the barracks wanted to know... Hey, what happened? Because usually if you get pulled off a of work detail, you're not coming back. So he comes back, and, and so he, that night, tells the, the, the guys in the barracks, what happened? He says, that, you know, this guy confessed his sin, he wanted me to forgive. And you could just imagine the conversation in the barracks at that moment. The, the, you know, you, you know the, the anger, the wrath, the, the confusion. And, and so Simon went on a quest. What are the limits... And what are the possibilities of forgiveness? Very deep philosophical man. And so he, he thought about this asking the question, what are the limits of forgiveness? What are the possibilities? Could I have forgiven him? Should I have forgiven him? What, or, or not? Or do I have the right? He, sh- should only that family have the right to forgive him? You know, what are the limits? What are the possibilities of forgiveness? Now, So the first half of the book is him telling this story. The second half of the book are 53 responses by 53 different religious and political leaders. Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, political leaders, all answering the question, what should Simon have done? Now, if you want to understand a cross-section of the world's understanding of forgiveness, there's your book. By the way, I don't endorse or support any book from the pulpit. (laughs) except the Bible. So, if you read it, you get offended by it, I'm not telling you to go out and buy it. I'm just telling you, this is what happens. All an introduction. But if you do read it, you'll find it a fascinating read on on what is the world's perspective of forgiveness. What are the limits? What are the possibilities? thought about that book this week as we were looking at this passage over the past few weeks and looking at all of Colossians 3. And on the one hand, as human beings, there are limits to forgiveness. right? Our human nature, our human flesh has a line. There are lines across. We can create scenarios. I honestly, as a human being, if I were in that moment, standing before that soldier, what would you do? Somebody who's been tormenting you and torturing you and has killed your family and and you don't even know if you're going to make it out alive, what would you do standing there at that moment? That's an extreme example, but, but nonetheless, what are the limits? What are the possibilities? But as humans, there are limits. But in the spiritual plane, we sung of these incredible songs today of, of God's love and salvation. And on a spiritual plane, there are possibilities, endless possibilities, of forgiveness when it comes to God endless possibilities I would like to think you know and this is easy to say 50 60 years later I would like to think that if I were standing there and I were Simon I would be saying you're asking for the wrong Jew to forgive you there was a Jewish man who died on a cross who can forgive you you know I would hope that that would somehow be the answer he needs to hear but fundamentally that's where the forgiveness lies he needs the supernatural forgiveness. And Colossians chapter 3, what it does is it takes the supernatural forgiveness of the grace and mercy of God and it places it in a human plane. It takes what is endless and places it in a world where there's limits. And then what it does is it transforms us to begin to embrace the limitless nature of forgiveness. The reason why I want to point that out is because I believe that when we talk about human relationships, there are two things we have to learn how to do. We have to learn how to love and we have to learn how to forgive. And humans struggle in those areas. We all do. We're going to accept that as our premise here today. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We all struggle. We'll just put that out there. But one of the unique things is, is that the relationship we have with God is the same relationship we're to have with others. And the reality is not to take the relationship with God and make that one directional, and then the relationship with others, we're going to make it in a different plane. But the reality is to try to take that relationship I have with God that's grounded in grace and mercy and love, and to then display that outward. And we're going to talk about that here, because this is where Paul is going. Right, He's been telling us, listen, we've been raised up with Christ. We're now part of Him. We're dead to sin. And, and, and one of the great things that's happened is that He's conformed us to the image of Jesus. And being conformed into the image of Jesus means that now we're going to reflect the very nature of Jesus in all that we do. And in our human relationships, the nature that we're going to connect with is a nature, nature of love and forgiveness. And so we're going to look at this here today. We're going to see this, and it's going to be very practical, very challenging, very convicting. But I want you, as we go through this, you're going to feel a tinge. You're going to feel conviction. I know you will, but I want to tell you this. Remember that as you feel that conviction, that conviction is being given with love and tenderness and forgiveness. And if, you can, and if we can be in that and receive that love and forgiveness, then we can display it. God is not desiring this morning to just slap you around because of all the ways that you were bad this week. God is desiring to alert you to the glory of Christ this morning. And when you see Him, you'll display that. And so that's going to be the reality of this. So, here's our... Break down. you see that in your bulletin. We're going to see this, this unity that we've been given. We stand in unity, united we stand. And then we're going to see that in that same unity that we have, that we've been given in Christ, we live. And in that same unity, we love. And we're going to see that flow today. And what I want you to see today are both the human limits, but also the spiritual possibilities of supernatural unity, supernatural love, and let that drive us as we engage each other distinctively as Christians. Right. So big task this morning, but let's jump into it. Let's look at verse 11 with me. Again, he's in the middle of this thought. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, he's been making this point, right? He's making this point. You've been raised up with Christ. You've been seated with Him. Uh, You're dead to this world. You're dead to to the old way of living, through the old selfish flesh. And what God is doing is He's actually forming within you the righteousness of Christ, the life of Christ, so that you would begin to reflect that in your world. And he says, in this life of Christ... Notice he says there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ. That's what's there. Now, why does he say this? Well, just stop and think about this. One of the unique things that's happened in all human relationships is that they break down, and they break down because we get judgmental. On a big plane, what's happened? Different cultures have emerged, right? Tower of Babel, God just separates and creates all these cultures. And then what happens? One culture starts thinking they're superior over another culture. Right? These, these, these separations occur. They occur on big macro levels like that. Prejudice comes in. They occur on, on, on background levels. I can look at somebody and say, wow, look at that person. Their life's a wreck. Or look at their marriage. Their marriage is a wreck. Or look at this person over here. They're not, you know, I would never be like them. We could look at it and, 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 and start having that kind of condemning spirit towards people. Or we can go around and say, wow, their life is better than mine. Their marriage is better than mine. You know, boy, look at them, the goody two-shoes. I would be good too. I wouldn't have all the problems if I was raised in their home and had their money. Right? It can go the other direction. Right? That judgmentalism keeps going. Look at their family. They think they're so perfect. They're not perfect. Right? Separation occurs. What happens in sin is it creates a division And we make those divisions based on culture, based on skin color, based upon whatever, backgrounds, education. And these divisions happen. And Paul's saying, now listen, when you're raised up in Christ, you're in Christ. Christ is now in you. You are in him. You're now being conformed to him. And when someone else is raised up with Christ, they're in Christ. God isn't saving a culture God isn't in, in, in heaven, like, you know, the, you, you, keeping the, kind of the Nazi illustration alive here, you know, in heaven saying, listen, my goal is the white Superman. No, his, it's Christ. He's not elevating one culture over another culture. And so he's saying, listen, these breakdowns come, and they break down the prejudices. And so he gives a series of, of conflicts. Notice the first one, it's a, it, you might call it a racial one, Greek or Jew. Right in that day, that would have been a huge issue. Jews, of course, were, you know, had separated themselves out and, and, and they felt that they were distinct and different. And then Greeks or Gentiles, we can call them that, were different. And he's saying, listen, God in heaven is not looking at a Jew and thinking they're better than a Gentile. God's not looking at the Gentiles and thinking they're better than the Jews. He's infusing Christ into all of them. So that distinction goes away. Even the religious distinction, circumcised, uncircumcised. Some were raised under the law, right? Now, we might not make that same kind of religious distinction today, but we, we could look at that one today and say, oh, look at them, they were raised in that perfect family. They never did anything wrong. I was raised over here with a you know, father who was like this, and a mother who was like this, and a brother who did this. And not like that perfect family over there, right? And we can make those distinctions. And he's saying, you know what? Those distinctions are gone, They're gone in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are in Christ. You're not defined by your background, your religious background, whether or not you were raised raised in a religious home or a a secular home. When you are in Christ, you are in Christ, is what he's saying. God is not making a distinction saying, because your background was a lot worse than their background, I elevate them above you. saying, no, you're in Christ. Then he goes on. There's no barbarian or Scythian. Now barbarians, though they, the, the title barbarian is just like a, a derogatory title for those people who didn't speak Greek, they were uneducated. These were just like kind of the, the you know, in one sense this is like a caste statement. These are the people that are outside. They, they, you know, they're just kind of raised in the middle of nowhere with no education. They're just, you know, whatever. They, they were barbarians. They didn't speak well. And uh, and they, they lived this barbarian life, and a Scythian was even worse than a barbarian because they were tribal people. So they were tribal, uneducated people. And so, and that distinction sometimes even occurs for us today because we could think that tribal person's less than us in that tribe because they don't speak a language and they're no, you know they don't they don't live in a Western culture and and you know they live in a hut. And obviously, they're less than us because I live in a house. And we can get those kinds. And he says, no, do you understand? If they're in Christ, they're equal to you. And these breakdowns go away. And what about slave and free man? There's not even slave and free people anymore in Christ. Meaning this, yeah, the culture has this institution called slavery. God doesn't recognize it when you are in Christ. One of the most profound books in the New Testament dealing with that issue is the book of Philemon. Just a little side note because probably Philemon is a book you probably don't sit down and say, I'm going to do my devotions out of Philemon. But here's the essence of it. A slave runs away. What should happen to him under Roman law? He should be returned to his master and executed. Slave runs away. He becomes a Christian. Guess who disciples this slave? Paul. Could you imagine that? The apostle Paul disciples the guy. And then Paul says, you got to go back you got to go back. You're breaking the law. But I'll help you out. I'm going to write a letter to your owner because he's a believer, your master. And he writes a letter to the master, and he says, he's a brother. He's coming back, but he's in Christ. That's what the letter's saying. These things are gone now. These distinctions are over. So what's he saying? He's saying, listen, here's the reality of it. When you are in Christ, all that matters is Christ. That's it. That's why he says Christ is all. He is everything. He's our life. Now, what is amazing is that we could probably come up with our own list of things. You probably weren't thinking barbarian, Scythian when you think about divisions. right? That's probably the last thing in your mind, or slave or free man. right? Those things don't necessarily come to, to our minds here in, 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 in Illinois. But there are distinctions we make. There are people we can roll our eyes at, people who are in Christ, and they can come and, 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 and do something, and you can go, "Oh yeah, yeah I can't believe these people are doing that." And the question is this: Are we making that because we're saying, "Hey, they're in Christ, and therefore we should treat them in a derogatory manner? No. They're in Christ, and if they're in Christ, He is everything, because why? Christ is all, and He's in all. You look derogatorily upon them you are looking derogatorily on Christ. Because we've got to see people through the lens, is what he's saying, get past the externals and look through the lens of Christ in them. So, here's Paul's point. This sets the table for what he's saying. When you are in Christ, then everyone is in Christ, and we are all connected, we are all united, and we all stand in unity in Him. We do not stand in unity through external things. Our unity is in Christ. Now, one of the things that can happen in a church is that sometimes we could try to manufacture that unity by externals. We could say, you know what we're going to become? We're going to become a church of people who love to go go-karting. Right? So what we're going to do is we're going to create a church for people who love go-karts. You love go-karts? Come! We're going to go to church, and then we're going to go go-karting afterwards. It's going to be great. And we're going to have, like, go-kart-themed parties and go-kart-themed fellowship dinners. And, of course, we'll follow NASCAR. Somehow that should connect. I don't know how, but it should. Because that's what we're going to be. And if you don't like go-karts, then there's a church down the road. that. Right? And sometimes it's easy to kind of silo yourself off into getting a bunch of people who do things exactly the way you do it. And you say, we're only unified if... if if we can get a whole group of people that are all connected the way I want to connect. And if suddenly they're not doing it the way I want to do it, then they're wrong and we got to leave. And Paul is saying, don't think that way. Our union is Christ. It's not about whether or not we all like to go go go-karting. It's not about whatever external thing we could put on our church, whatever kind of unity tag we want to say. We're going to be the church of, you know... 24-year-old people who play basketball. We're going to be a church of 45-year-old people who don't. (laughs) Whatever it is. No, we're not unified in that. What are we? We are in Christ. And if you love go-karting, or if you love basketball, or if you do or you don't, it doesn't matter. I've got to see past the external is what he's saying and see Christ in you and if I only am living in the world of the external, right, why don't they like go-karts in that church? All the other churches have go-karts. Then I'm actually missing the whole point of Christianity. You're not just missing a little bit. When he says Christ is all and in all, then you're missing all of it, if it's just that, right? So there's, there's this point. United we stand. We stand united in Christ. Therefore, now, that's our next point. This should impact the way we live. United we live. We touched on these. Those of you who were at the marriage retreat last weekend touched on this verse. And uh, we're going to go in a, and, and, and keep that, that alive from what uh, Darryl taught on last weekend. But we're going to see this here and see that if that's true, what do I do then when I come driving into the church in a go-kart and you go, oh, I can't believe he rode a go-kart on a Sunday. And now we have conflict. Okay? We have conflict now. Some of you don't like go-karts and you think they're wrong and sinful. Some of you do like go-karts. Now, what are we going to do? What we have to do is say, listen, The issue isn't go-carts. What is not go karts whats the issue? Now we're going to learn what we are to do as a result of the fact that we're united in Christ. So notice he says here in verse 13, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now, I'll just stop it there. But let's just look at this verse, section here, verse 12. It says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. So here's what he's saying. The entire context of this is how we're to relate to each other. And keep in mind, it's how to relate to each other when go-carts become the issue. They're now, now that's the issue on the table. Now, what do I do? And how do I press through and say, wait a minute, our union is in Christ? How do I press through the fact that I think go-karts are horrible? Okay, so what do we do? How do we get past that? Well, Paul tells us: he says, listen, you have got to put on certain things. If you are in Christ, then the pursuit should be: listen, I want to be created, and Paul said this earlier in the passage, I'm being created in the image of my creator. So I want to I see that go on, and we'll talk practically on how that would look here. But, but what he's kind of telling me is he's saying, okay, I'm going to tell you how you should live then as a result of this. How do we keep Christ-centered? Now notice what he first thing he does. Before he tells us what we're to put on, and we'll talk about being put on, what that means to put something on, he gives us an identity. He gives us an identity. He says, now listen, I want to remind you, because notice he says in, in 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, right? So, so he's saying, okay, here's who you are. Right? I want you to recognize you are God's chosen one. You are holy. You are beloved. God is doing something, has done something for you. We can say it this way, very simple. God's attitude towards you God's attitude towards you if you are in Christ is threefold. When He deals with you, He deals with you to accomplish three things. To forgive you, to restore you, and to renew you. So when you blow it, get in a fight with someone, yell, get angry, get greedy, get lustful, whatever. When that sin emerges out of you, God is in heaven saying, okay, three things are going to happen here. Number one, I'm going to forgive you. Done. Cross. Accomplished. Second, I'm going to renew you. I want to change you. I don't want you to be this way. Third, I restore you. I want you to know what it means to have fellowship with me. So every time I deal with you, even if I'm I'm coming and bringing discipline in your life, it is with an attitude to always forgive, always renew, always restore, always, 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 always doing that. That is God's attitude towards you today, tomorrow, when you sleep, when you wake up. Tomorrow you're going to get up, and if you sin, God's attitude might be, hey, I might have to bring a little discipline into your life. Why? Because I want you to know you're forgiven, done, accomplished on the cross. I want you to be changed. I want you to be restored into fellowship. That is my attitude towards you all the time. And that's the relationship he's renewing within us. I think this is what I'm trying to create you to be. And the relationship that that you and I have with this forgiveness and renewal and restoring, I want it to be this way. I want it to be this way. So, says now, so I want to remind you then you are God's chosen ones. What does that mean? It means God has called you, His sovereign act, He's made you alive, He's given you life, He's opened your eyes, He's pulled you into a relationship with Himself. You're God's chosen one. Not only that, you're holy. What does that mean? You're set apart. He's pulled you out of this world for his purposes. And you're beloved, which means what? He loves you. And he will never stop loving you. Paul says nothing in the world will separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not life, not death, nor angels, demons, Satan. Nothing can stop God from loving you you in christ okay so he's saying now remember all this that you have been given this is who you are god has saved you he's pulled you out of all the yuck of this world and he's showered you with his love and that is what you are a recipient of all the time all the time think about this you can be so upset and angry that you could even be like, God, I'm so mad at you. And God isn't going, oh, yeah? You want to see anger? Ugh. Right? You do not do that. He said, you know what? I love you. Not even your anger will separate me from you. I'm going to love you even through your bad attitude. I'm just pursuing you constantly with love. That's who you are. So then what does he say? Well, he says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, notice this whole list of things, compassion in hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. So now, what does that mean? Well, he's saying, listen, I want you to wrap yourselves in that same attitude that God has had. I want, I want that to be your defining reality of your life we're going to talk about ways that maybe we could think about that and how, how, how that practically would look but just as far as understanding the concept the concept is now this whole new attitude is the pursuit of my life which means this that that when we have conflict i drive in and my go-kart to church and somebody goes oh i can't believe the pastor drives a go-kart okay at that moment i look at your face and my flesh goes oh can't believe you're so judgmental. And then he says, oh, look at that. The pastor has such an angry look on his face. And I say, oh, I can't believe that they continue with that angry look. They should have recognized that look was chastisement. They should be humbling themselves, right? And on and on it should be going. Right? Now that's the flesh. Isn't that what happens? Then how it all goes? He's, now what am I doing there? I am putting on a judgmental attitude. I am putting on an attitude of, of the flesh. And what he's saying is, no, don't do that. Here's what I want. Now, we'll just walk down this list. I'll walk through relatively quickly here. You can look all these terms up in dictionaries and see what they all mean. But I'll just give you the heart of them. The first one is a compassionate heart. This is a merciful heart, is what that means. It's tenderness. I'll give you a, kind of my simple definition of it. It's a heart that, that looks at something from someone else's point of view. It's a heart that wants to understand someone else's heart. Not just what did you do, but why. What's happening? Are you weak? Are you faint-hearted? Do you need help? Do you need encouragement? Right? It's a compassionate heart. Kindness. Kindness is not just being nice. It's actually serving someone. That's what kindness ultimately means. It means offering service to someone even when they don't deserve it. If you're familiar with that book, The Love Dare, some of you are familiar with that book, The Love Dare? That book is actually premised on just the notion, the biblical notion of kindness. Doing something nice for someone, even if they don't deserve it. What's kindness. So put that heart on. Humility. That is the idea of treating people as if they are more important than you. Rather than is getting in your way, or you're annoyed with them, or I don't care about them, or or just inserting yourself. This is how I want it. I want a church of go karts. That's what I want. Go karts. If we don't have go karts, then you obviously don't love Jesus, right? That is not a humble heart. A humble heart would say, "Listen, it's not about go karts. It's about Christ. I'll burn my go kart if that's better for you." Doesn't matter. Not on a crusade for go karts. On a crusade for Christ. Next one. Meekness. Meekness is the idea of, of a of its characteristic of a person who, who isn't uh, coming across aggressive towards people. You know, uh, uh, if you look at meekness in the opposite, it's the idea of, like, being aggressive. Like, what are you doing? Arr! You know, just coming at someone. Um, uh, it, it's, it's a, it, this is a mild approach in which you, you want there to be kind of gentleness flowing out in the situation. Patience, simple definition of patience. How about this? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Bearing with one another. Look at it this way. Holding people up as long as they need it. Holding people up as long as they need it. That's hard for us. It's easy to disengage after a while. right? We all get exhausted holding people up and then forgiving each other. Now, I'm going to just land on this one for a minute. You know the word forgiveness. You understand it. You've heard it. You know, you hear it all the time. But I don't know if you know what the word actually means. So, you know that I'm not one to give out Greek words from the, from the pulpit, but this is one I want to give out because it, it'll, it'll make forgiveness pop a little bit for you. Forgiveness, the root of the word forgiveness, is actually the word grace. The word forgiveness is actually it's, it's, it's an action form of the word grace. What is grace? Giving something to someone they don't deserve. Are we objects of God's grace? Right, yes. Right? Do we deserve to be saved? No. When we were enemies of, of God, what did He do? He died for us. He took the punishment. Grace. Okay. That's grace. You're getting something you don't deserve. Forgiveness is the word grace with a little ending on it. That little ending basically says to be churning out grace. There's a spigot of grace. There would be the picture I might want to use. A spigot of grace. And he says let grace be what flows. Why? Because it flows in this direction all the time, does it not? All the time. I mean, I don't think we even understand grace until we get to heaven and we see how awesome God is. And then he's saying, now listen, what I want you to do is I want you to let grace flow out of you. Just let it, let it kind of be pouring out of you, giving to people what they don't deserve. And then to make sure we understand it, notice he unpacks it even further. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, Now, if there was a period there, this would be somewhat of a doable verse. But there's not a period. ESV has a little semicolon. And then there's a phrase after that. And this is just like, we need grace in order for this phrase, don't we? As the Lord has forgiven you. Then notice the intensity. So you also must forgive. I think Paul's making a point there. He's saying, you are a recipient of grace all the time. And you're being created in Christ, and you must be a spigot of grace all the time. So, the reason why I'm making this point about forgiveness and grace is this. There are situations in life that sometimes the the incident itself can't always be restored, right? There are some conflicts that are difficult to restore, meaning there could could be an offense that could be done. Um, Take the illustration here of Simon Wiesenthal. Simon cannot absolve the entire Nazi regime at that hospital bed and say, I forgive you, therefore it's all well, all good, right? He couldn't do that. It's too big. Conflict's too big. But, Paul is saying, Simon still could pour grace out of himself, even if the situation isn't resolved. He could still be an agent of grace, trusting that God himself is the righteous judge and will make things right. There's the point of that is the point of First Peter chapter two, verses twenty and onward, when he says Jesus is being cussed out. So what literally is what being said? They're swearing at him, and he's not swearing back at him. And they're hitting him, hitting him in the face, and he's not hitting him back. He just entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Okay, God, you're going to take this situation. You're going to have to make it right. But I can still be a spigot of grace here. Just because I can't resolve the situation doesn't mean I can't pour grace out. And we'll talk about in a minute what that looks like. But here's the point he's trying to get at. God wants a, the one relationship we have with him that defines our relationship with him. We are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And Paul is saying that has to churn itself this way. Why? Because we're holy and we've been set apart to do what? Make Christ known. And if I'm going to make Christ known, then I want to show that spigot of grace everywhere. Could you imagine an investor coming and saying, give me all your money, I will invest it, I will invest it. And you say, well, okay, have you invested it into this little fund? Oh yeah, yeah, and how did it do? I lost everything, but trust me, it'll work. Would you, are you going to put your money in there? No, 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 no. I'm not putting my money in there. <laughs> are you kidding me? No, but give me yours. Right? You'd be like, why? If I say I'm a recipient of grace, that I've got to be a provider and a spigot of grace as well. God's my judge. He'll make the situations right. But I want to look past those distinctions that I would make and be a recipient of grace. So, just as united we stand It's Christ. United we live. Therefore, what I've received, I want to pour out. And then finally, the last point United we love. Look at verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What's the essence of this? I think what he's saying here is that he's saying, listen, here's the overarching principle. Did that go out for a second? Could have been me. You got this whole grocery list of things. Right? And you could sit down and say, okay, today I'm going to work on meekness. And tomorrow I'm going to work on patience. And And you go down that list. But that isn't what he's saying. He didn't give you that whole list to to make it a checklist and say, humility. Got it. I've achieved it. Yes. I've achieved humility. Okay. I'm going to write a book about it. (laughs) No, it's not the point. And say, now listen, what do you do with a grocery list like that? Well, he's going to bring it down to its essence. Above, basically superseding all of this, the whole point, you want to do this? Put on love. Why? Love is the thing that holds all these traits together, and it is the bond of unity that is deeper than any fleshly sense of unity. So the pursuit, then, is to say, give me a heart of love. So how do we do this? Well, let me kind of, for a moment here, uh, give you a personal testimony of this. Okay, Just a personal testimony in my own life of, of a time when I had to apply this. And I'm going to give you this testimony by way of saying, God really worked in it. I'm not giving you this testimony to say, follow me, I, I know how to do this. But I just want to bear testimony of, of, of a situation in my life where this verse rang true. And I'll I'll be honest about some things that happened there. But I remember one time getting hurt by somebody very deeply. And it wasn't a little hurt. It wasn't like a, you know, whatever, just the skirmishes that go on in life all the time. It was a deep hurt. It was, you know, knife to the heart hurt. And you know it's a knife to the heart hurt because everything in your flesh uh, makes you loathe the person when you think of them. Right? I mean, it was that kind of hurt where I, I couldn't be in the same room with the person. Very deep, deep bad things had happened. And, uh, and and I remember struggling with this and talking to somebody who was a pastor, and I said, hey, you know, you know, I, 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 I'm not a good place with this person. They hurt me bad. And uh, this pastor actually referenced this passage. He said, well, you know, I think you've got to put on love, man. Okay, so you're like, okay, put on love. How do you put on love when you hate the guy, right? You know, like, like I'm dreaming about running him over in my car. You know, like I'm not dreaming about loving him, right? And so it's, it's not like I woke up going, hey, yeah, love, that's it, right? So, so I wasn't getting much help in learning how to do this. And uh, so I just decided to be real honest with God. To so, God, you want me to love this person. You tell me to bless those who persecute me, be good to those that are doing evil to me, to turn the other cheek, to put on love, and to forgive this person like you forgave me. So like Jesus is hanging on the cross, and these people are like spitting on them and punching them and calling them names, and he's like, Father, forgive them. Okay, you want me to do that? I can't do that. I hate this person. I am not praying, Father, forgive them. I'm thinking more Old Testament stuff, fire and plagues. You know, <laughs> like I'm not there. So what happens? I pray, God, I don't want to love this person. But I know that I should. Would you change my heart? And I just started praying that. Would you change my heart? My heart is filled with. Hatred for this person, would you change my heart? And you know, over the course of months, I started thinking about the incident and it didn't own me. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, you could recycle the incident, it can own you to where you're reliving it over and over and over and over and over again. Suddenly, I stopped reliving it. Suddenly, over time, the prayer wasn't kind of offered up by, by faith, I started slowly meaning it. And over time, God removed the anger that was there, gone, over time. I think putting on love is a continual action. It's written in such a way to say, keep putting it on, keep putting it on. You're going to face that situation maybe the prayer begins, I'm reliving the situation. I'm dreaming about it. I'm fantasizing about it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how I would respond. And I'm, I'm reliving that situation and reworking what I would have said. And if I was ever in that situation again, this is what I would say. And, and on and on and on, right? I mean, that was, that's what was putting. So what I was putting on in my life was bitterness and anger and bitterness and anger. I was putting that on every day. Every time I reviewed the scenario in my head, I was putting on more anger. Every time I put the scenario in my head, I was putting on more. Every time I started creating situations, I started creating more conflict than there really was. Next thing you know, I've worked myself off into this lather all in my own head. Why? Because I was putting on anger and putting on bitterness. And What he's saying is, no, put on love. God, I know that I need to bless those who persecute me. Change my heart so that I will bless them. Start to review the situation in your head. God, I'm reviewing the situation. I'm obsessing on my sense of justice. God, I want to put on love here. I'm going to pray by faith that you'll forgive them, even if I don't experience justice on earth. I'll surrender my right to justice and I'll leave that into your hands. I'll let you be judge. Make me a spigot of your grace. You're a judge. I'm just a spigot of grace. Just start praying that over and over. You know what that is? It's putting it on. Putting it on. Putting it on. We're going to put that in the Greek. That's what it means. Put it on every day. Keep putting it on. Put on more grace. Put on more love. More. More. Keep putting it on. You start to recycle this conflict in your head. Put on Grace. I come driving in a go kart, you hate go karts? Don't say, I hate go karts. Say, there is somebody justified by grace. And Jesus is in them. And that's all that matters to me. God, give me that heart. God's love towards us is that He broke through sin, He displayed grace. He's working to give me peace. He's not just seeking to be right. He's seeking to display righteousness. And he brings compassionate victory, not hostile victory, in my life. Compassionate victory. A restoring victory, not a hostile victory. He doesn't spike the ball in the end zone. In your face. He doesn't do that. Just come on into the family, man. I love you. That's how we can turn the the human relation, the, the the spiritual relationship into a human relationship. So let's wrap this up here. United we stand, we are bound together in Christ. United we live. We want to bring that grace that we've received to others. And united we love. The prayer of our life is: God, give me a heart of love. So what I'm going to do. So let's just kind of come with just three simple implications, and then we'll pray. Three simple implications, and then we're done. First implication is this. In order for this to be true, you have to be a Christian. You have to be in Christ. You had to have come to some point where God has opened your eyes, and you recognize, I need that forgiveness from God. I need my past reconciled. I need my pain reconciled. I need to be right with you. It starts there. But second implication is then i need to study the savior right if i'm being conformed to the image of christ then the image of christ should be something i start obsessing on who is jesus and thirdly cultivating a relationship with christ recognizing now i want to serve him i want to love him i want to learn about him from his word pray and talk back to him begin to start saying jesus fill me with your love Fill me with your love. I don't want to be owned by anger. I don't want to be owned by bitterness. Fill me with your love. I want to know your love, study your love, be aware of your love so that I might display your love. Those are the implications. But I think what would be really beneficial for us to do is for you just to close your eyes right now. And while I'm praying, maybe you can pray with me. It's possible that when you go through a sermon like this, a name or names or situations emerge. It not, would not be unlike the Holy Spirit to convict you of a situation. He's not convicting you to beat you up this morning. He's convicting you to free you. To free you of the bondage of anger and bitterness. And to restore you and renew you. So while I'm praying, why don't you pray? And just say, God, in this situation, let me be a spigot of grace. I'll trust you as my judge and I just want to dispense grace. So while I pray, maybe you need to pray the same. Would you join with me? Father, your grace is amazing. We are not saved by anything we have done, but by Christ alone. We have received grace freely So, Lord, I pray that that grace would flow as water flows from a spigot. Lord, our flesh fights that. But, Lord, remind us as as it does that you're our judge. You're doing your work. You're carrying out your purposes. You will make all things right in the end. Help us to not idolize justice, but instead to worship you. And to let your grace flow fruit through us. We're set apart so that we would make that known. You've raised Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead. Lord, let us get that straight in our minds and our hearts so that we might be spigots of grace. And in any, any situations that are going on in people's lives, Lord, I pray that you would touch them with your grace this morning. Allow them to know the compassion and the love and the tenderness you have. Free them. Amen from their anger and allow us to walk in this world distinctively as Christians, touched by your grace. Lord, I know situations are complex. Some situations might not resolve this side of eternity. But Lord, free us from obsessing on that and allow us to be spigots of grace everywhere all the time. In Christ's name, amen.